Welcome back to the Monday Morning Point Guard Podcast. On today's episode, going to be kicking things off with a little bit of pre-draft coverage, more specifically talking about the guy I've seen number one in most mock drafts in Chet Holmgren. What type of player will he be in the league as well as just in general, what are the positives and negatives with him as a prospect? He's seen as a very controversial type prospect. So just going through that and really breaking that down. Also going to be continuing the eulogy series with the Indiana Pacers and the Houston Rockets, who are both officially eliminated from the playoffs. What do their seasons look like as well as what should they be kind of looking to do heading into the offseason and then also beyond that? If you do enjoy the podcast, please be sure and rate it as well as follow us. Also, if there's a spot that you agree with, disagree with, you can either reach out to us on YouTube or on Twitter, and we'd love to discuss it with you. So it's getting to be about that time to do the pre-draft coverage and and start talking about the prospects as we head into kind of the end of the regular season. And then uh, draft lottery is coming up and we can really start to nail down who we think these prospects are. Uh, I've admitted multiple times throughout the the course of doing this podcast. I don't watch a ton of college basketball throughout the year. There are just only so many hours in the day. So I'm not going to be doing breakdowns on every first round prospect or the first and second round prospects, but I at least want to get to the top three, especially since the top three this year feels like guys who were all created or creative players in NBA 2K. Like they're just insane. And Chet is the guy that I've seen tossed around the most as the number one pick. And for me, at least, I don't think there's been a harder prospect to evaluate in terms of a top prospect during my time following the draft in the NBA. He really is just the ultimate high ceiling, low floor type guy. And the more I've kind of watched him, the more confused and unsure I am about his future in the NBA you could convince me easily five years from now that he's an all NBA type guy, a total bust or really anything in between. And I know I'm not alone there. So let's really break it down here. Let's take a look at the good, the bad, and then also what type of role he could thrive in, in the NBA. And I guess first we should start by breaking down what Chet is as a player and at Gonzaga, he's a seven foot tall, 195 power forward slash center, I would say. And, and during his time at Gonzaga, he put up 14 points a game, 10 boards, 1.7 assists, and 3.7 blocks on 60% field goals, 39% from three, and 72% on free throws. And it really, as a player, he's a silky smooth ball handling seven footer, a potential defensive anchor on one end of the floor, and then he has guard type skills on the other. As far as unicorns go, he has the chance to have his picture next to the definition of that in the dictionary. And when you look at him, it's hard not to just see Kristaps Porzingis, but I actually don't think that's a very good comp for his offensive game. The Knicks version of Porzingis was really a big guy with some perimeter skills, whereas Chet really feels more like a guard in a big man's body or a guard who happens to be seven feet tall. And as far as the positives for Chet's for Chet as a whole, his defensive aptitude has to be at the top of the list. He set a record for blocks in a season at Gonzaga, and obviously nearly four blocks a game, he's going to be just an elite shot blocker. He's a seven foot five wingspan, and with his go-go gadget arms, it seems like he always is surprising opponents with the contest radius that he has when they're trying to shoot over the top of him. They seem like surprised that he's blocked the shot or has made like a really strong contest. And my favorite thing about his shot blocking piece and that part of his game is just how smart he is about that. So many times with young players, you see them kind of flying in with very little control or very little regard for their for their body or the or the offensive player's body in hopes of like batting the ball into the 10th row or spiking it into the 10th row. And Chet really doesn't do that. He allows that superior length that he has to do the work for him. And he's using verticality to contest and block shots, very similar to the way Roy Hibbert used to do it rather than coming flying in weak side and just hammering the ball into the you know fifth row and and crushing the guy with the ball as a result and also to to go along with the way he uses his verticality to contest shots he's also got really great timing on that end and that's also aided by the fact that he has 
probably the biggest block or biggest contest window in the country. And that's a term I just kind of made up. But if you think about the timing it takes to block a shot, a guy like Chet at seven feet tall with a seven foot five wingspan is just going to have a wider margin for error in terms of the timing that it takes to effectively contest or block a shot because of his length. He can wait on the jump and he has less distance to cover both vertically and horizontally versus a smaller shot blocker like maybe a Ben Wallace or a Bam Adebayo who's only in like the 6'8", 6'9", range. Those guys have to jump higher to block the shot. And and as a result of just their lack of stature, they really have to nail the timing of their jump when they're contesting shots around the rim. Chet doesn't really have to do that. And also on defense, he's really mobile and – I think he's going to be able to hold up fine when he switched onto guards at the next level. Now, I don't think he's going to be able to lock up guards kind of like Bam Adebayo does on the perimeter. He doesn't have the elite lateral quickness, but I think he's got just enough when you combine it with his length. He could give guards trouble at the next level or at least hang in there and not completely embarrass himself. And just in general, for a young player, Chet has really great instincts defensively, and he seems to just play really great positional defense. He knows when to when to be in a certain spot, where to be, and he just always seems to be in the right places. Now, offensively, Chet is a highly skilled and extremely fluid player with or without the ball, especially for the guy, a, a guy his size. This isn't the case of some big, goofy, skinny kid with two left feet. He really moves well around the court. He has basically every shot in his arsenal. He makes several plays a game that just completely drop your jaw. Early on in that Memphis game during the tournament, he attacked a closeout. He did like a crossover or something, got around the defender, ends up doing like this shimmy shake half spin fadeaway in the paint. And I was just like, oh, my God, just because you don't see seven footers moving like that. And for Chet, he could take you off the dribble with either like a straight line drive or he's got a pretty nice crossover. He can hit you with a hezzy. And and once he's in the paint, he has this really nice spin move gather off the dribble or he can just finish over the top of you because he's huge. And shooting wise, while he isn't like a pure sharpshooter like Carl Anthony Towns or a Dirk Nowitzki, he's still pretty effective from deep at 39% threes in college. And he's going to be able to hit the spot up shots off of like catch and shoot opportunities. But also what you can see him do is he kind of dribbles into shots. He's not going to be hitting like step back threes like we've seen Cat do. And we really didn't see a lot of pick and pop from him either. But in terms of like spot up opportunities and just kind of dribble walking up into a three, he can do those things. He's also got tremendous touch around the hoop and around the rim. And that really serves him well finishing around the basket. He's really efficient around there. I mean, he shot 60% on field goals, which is just insane. And Despite Chet only averaging 1.7 assists a game, I think that's really an underrated part of his game. He's a really underrated passer and playmaker. He's far from like a Jokic level, like a really elite playmaker, either vision-wise or just general pass accuracy, but he's still got enough that it's going to serve him really well in the NBA. He's just a really willing passer, and we've seen him make some great drop-off passes to Timmy in the post or kicking it out to shooters. He just seems to make the right read really often, especially for a big guy. That's something that Joel Embiid has really struggled with throughout his career. He's kind of getting it together now, but it seems like Chet already has some of that or maybe all of that added to his game that he's going to be able to pass on a double teams really effective should he get double teamed at the next level rebounding wise he's a really great rebounder and I guess that's to be expected for a seven footer but when you look at his frame you may not expect that as much and you would really probably feel like you would see him get pushed around a lot under the hoop on box out opportunities, but it really doesn't happen as often as you might think. And when it does, when he is getting kind of pushed around down there, a lot of times it just doesn't even matter because his leg just allows him to kind of scoop up any, any rebounds. Like you're so focused on kind of moving him out of the way. He just kind of reaches over the top of you and grabs it. 
And on the offensive board specifically, he has a really quick second jump. And that soft touch I mentioned around the rim, he's a a monster on putback opportunities on the defensive glass. And this is probably my favorite part of his package altogether, him as a prospect. Checking just get the rebound off the miss or one of his block opportunities, and he can lead the break, sort of like what we used to see Draymond Green do when he was younger. And while Chet isn't the passer or playmaker that Draymond is, he's a far greater threat to score than Draymond has ever thought about being in that type of scenario. He could take it all the way to the cup, or if you sag off, I mentioned earlier, he can walk into one of those three-point opportunities on the break and bury it. And as stated, he's a pretty solid passer. So if you're going to overcommit to him on a fast break type scenario, he's going to be hitting the open man with no problems. Now, the case I've just laid out for him makes it sound like he's a really complete basketball player in a lot in a lot of ways he is, but there are still some really major concerns or question marks with him and that's what makes it really difficult to evaluate it I think let's get the we should get the biggest one and the most obvious one out of the way and that's his weight 195 that's just too skinny for a player of his height and to put that into perspective he weighs about as much as Kyrie Irving He's nearly a foot taller than Kyrie Irving, and they weigh the same. And in a lot of college matchups, he was able to mitigate some of those strength issues with his length. But in the tournament, some of those issues were on full display. As a driver, even as a guard, if it seems like if you get into his chest off of the drive, you can just move him out of the way, push him under the basket, which is obviously really going to limit and almost at times can negate what he can do as a shot blocker. And during the Memphis game specifically, while not everyone on Memphis was an NBA caliber player, there were a lot of NBA caliber athletes out there and they were attacking Chet with no fear whatsoever. He still ends up in the game with four blocks, but they were able to get him into foul trouble as a result of that. In post-up scenarios, there's going to be basically no chance he's going to be able to contend with bigs like Embiid at the NBA level based on what we saw in the Memphis game where they were just kind of tossing him around. How big of a concern is this actually? I think it's a pretty huge concern, and I don't think it's one that he's going to be able to solve or he's equipped to solve. I have seen Chet supporters say, well, Anthony Davis, Dwight Howard, guys like that were really skinny, Giannis. They were really skinny when they came into the league and they filled out. And while that's true, Anthony Davis and Giannis, Giannis is just a complete freak anyway. I mean, he grew three, four inches from when he entered the league. So that's not really a good comparison to draw. I don't think that's going to be the case for Chet. But with Anthony Davis specifically, even though he was skinny, he still had a frame that made it look like it was going to be possible to pack on some muscle onto him. He had the broader shoulders and I'm no expert on human anatomy or or personal training, but Chet just doesn't seem to have the frame like an, like a young Anthony Davis or a young Dwight Howard, young Giannis before they put on the weight. It's, it still looked like they could, they could fill out. There was room to fill out. Chet is kind of hunched over and he's got really narrow shoulders. It just doesn't look like he has, the body type that's going to be able to carry around a bunch of weight. So the answer can't just be bulk him up and because if his frame can't handle it, then you're going to risk a ton of injuries. And Kristaps Porzingis is a really good example of that. And, and he was a guy who was fairly skinny and then they bulked him up and now he just can't seem to stay healthy. So the reality for Chet is he's likely just going to be like a Kevin Durant type body type versus an Anthony Davis a guy who's just really skinny and he's just going to have to find ways to work around that strength issue Durant never really solved it he never really bulked up I mean he toned up a little bit and I expect Chet to do the same but as far as adding a ton of mass Kevin Durant never really did that and I don't expect that Chet will either and to Chet's credit he's still a really tough kid And with his frame, you might expect him to kind of shy away from contact and not want to get beaten up too much, but he really hangs in there and he takes the beating, even if his matchup has a huge strength advantage on him. One of the other big concerns here is can Chet create his own offense at the NBA level? It's something we really haven't seen him do in college. And this concerns me less 
just the fact that we haven't seen him do it in college. And despite the tournament results and like where he kind of struggled, at least offensively, didn't put up big stats, he was on a fairly loaded college team and he wasn't asked to do a lot of his own scoring. Tournament-wise, he spent a lot of time in foul trouble. Memphis game aside, that Arkansas game, where he picked, he had the, his last three fouls in that game were just completely ridiculous. It was complete nonsense. So I don't want to overreact to like him picking up three fouls on really bad calls. And to kind of illustrate the offensive point, why I don't think his production in college is a huge concern for me projecting him as a scorer or production wise in the NBA. I'm going to put up a graphic here. Uh, for those on YouTube, where we've got Chet on one side and an unnamed player on the other side and just compare their stats. They look really similar. And for this, player B is Anthony Davis. He was also on a really loaded college team where he wasn't asked to do a lot of scoring. He was mainly there for his defense, at least in the confines of that team. And that's worked out just fine in the league. And I'm not saying that Chet is Anthony Davis or will be a player anywhere near that in terms of his potential or especially not play style wise. But my point is both of those guys were on really good teams where they weren't asked or needed to carry a huge creation load offensively. Drew Timmy is clearly the engine that drives this team and everything offensively that Gonzaga does revolves around him. Even the guards on Gonzaga, it it felt like at times they would even forget that they had Timmy Musletch Chet down there and they would kind of go rogue and do their own thing. And in the times that I watched Gonzaga, almost no sets were ran with the intention of setting up scoring opportunities for Chet. And I really hesitate to say that Chet's scoring even came from within the flow of the offense because I think that would be a slight to him. It felt like most of his scoring, at least during the tournament was junk type scoring, getting offensive rebounds, fast breaks, just kind of like hard working his way into some production. So I think at the NBA level, if you catered to him a little bit more, I think the production would be there, but I think nevertheless, it's good to know that he's able to get 15 or so points a game off of basically hard work and basketball IQ alone. And While Chet isn't like a clear everybody out and watch me cook type score, he has shown enough of a bag at the NBA level, especially as a seven footer that he's going to be able to score. My last big concern for Chet is where he gets drafted and what his role is going to be. Sort of like when Zion entered the draft, albeit for almost the opposite reasons with Zion versus Chet, it's hard to imagine a role. It was hard to imagine a role for Zion because we really hadn't seen a player like that. Sure, there were shades of Charles Barkley and Larry Johnson with Zion, but it was still a totally different thing, something we really hadn't seen before. And Chet is in a really similar boat, like I said, for almost the opposite reasons. He really doesn't fit into like these old archetypes we have, like the stretch five, a three and D wing, combo guard. He doesn't really fit into any of those boxes. So it isn't going to be the easiest of transitions for an organization. You're not just going to be able to slide him into one of these kind of predetermined roles and expect him to thrive like you would some players. And I really feel that if you draft Chet, if you, especially at the number one pick, if that's the direction you decide to go more than any of the other players being considered for this number one pick, you as an organization, a coaching staff, a front office, you have to have a really clear vision of how you want to develop him, what you want him working on, and what you want his role to be on the team. Scotty Barnes is a guy that kind of came to mind as well from last year's draft who could have really suffered if he ended up in the wrong situation on the wrong team that wanted him to play like a traditional power forward in this modern day. If a team had told Scotty Barnes to just go stand in the corner, stay out of the way, you're not going to get any ball handling duties or any playmaking duties, that would have been a total disaster for him. So like the Raptors did for Barnes, Chet is going to have to have a role kind of catered to him that allows him to do the things he does well and that role doesn't exist in our more modern traditional archetypes so 
what do I think Chet should be? How do I think he should play? I think with his strength issues and issues in that department, I think the stretch five, I think him playing the center is totally off the table for me. Similar, similarly to what the Cavs did this year with Mobley, I think he's going to have to play alongside another center who can take that Joel Embiid matchup, take that Jokic matchup. Even guys like Steven Adams, those really strong centers, they're going to eat him alive. And if you're going to ask him to hold up for 82 games, he's going to need someone who can bang with those centers in his place. I still want him in a position to block shots, but I don't want him getting beaten up every night and shoved under the hoop like some nerd getting shoved into a locker just night after night. Offensively, though, this is where he could be really fun. And I really don't want him relegated to stand in the corner or stand at the top of the key duty like we see with some bigs and specifically Brooke Lopez, where he just kind of hangs out at the top of the key and shoots threes. I think you should sprinkle that in with him, but he can do a lot more than that. Same with pick and roll with him as the roll guy. I think that needs to be sprinkled in for his offensive package, but I I don't want that to be the main part of, of what he is as a player. So to kind of define like a more specific role for him, I think sliding into like a Warriors Kevin Durant role combined with like a little bit of the Bam Adebayo piece, I obviously don't see him as the next Kevin Durant as a player. So what do I mean by like the Warriors specific version of Kevin Durant? If you think about that version, he really wasn't doing a ton of dribble the air out of the ball ISO type stuff like we see with the Nets and like we saw earlier on with the Thunder, he was moving a lot off the ball and setting up chances where he could catch and shoot or make a quick one to two dribble move, either getting to the basket or setting up like a mid-range shot. I think if you run Chet off the ball, similarly to that, he could be really effective. He's shown that he has the IQ to really move off the ball, and that's something that's going to utilize his skill set. As I've mentioned, he's not an ISO break-you-down-off-the-dribble type guy, but he can still give you a hesitation, a crossover, a spin move. He can get to the cup. He can use his size to pull up over the top of defenders. He can do like a straight line drive or get one of those spin moves going in the paint. I really wouldn't want to see him dribbling the ball more than three to four times in his scoring opportunities. And I think that the the more you limit his dribbling and just allow him to kind of make quick decisions off the ball or once he catches it, get it like a get him in space a little bit where he can attack big guys. I think that's where he's going to be most effective. For the Bam Adebayo component of this role, I would obviously love to see him being Chet, get chances to lead the fast break. I think that goes without saying, but in the half court, you can get the ball into his hands in the high post and let him hit some cutters or run some handoff type stuff. We've seen him be really dangerous as a playmaker and a scorer when he's one dribble away from the rim. So they really need to set up those chances for him. And for God's sakes, just don't have him only being only posting up in the low block or only standing in the corner. Chet Holmgren is likely going to be the most controversial player in this year's draft. And it's likely going to be years before we get an answer as to what he is. But what do you guys think? Do you think he's going to be an all NBA all-star level player? Do you think he's just like a starter or a role player, or is he just going to be a total bust altogether? To the surprise of no one, the Houston Rockets have officially been eliminated from the playoffs. And at this stage in the eulogy series, I really don't find it necessary to dive in the team into the team numbers as to why these bottom feeding teams are losing. Some of them, like the Magic and the Pistons before the Rockets here, weren't put together with any intention of winning many games. And the Rockets entering this season likely had the most blatant tanking approach. They literally sent the second highest paid player in the league home in John Wall, but I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later. I think it's pretty hard to be upset at the Rockets for entering this complete teardown because they were sort of forced into it against their will. Entering last season, the Rockets had every intention of retooling around James Harden. They made a Russell Westbrook, John Wall swap. They took a flyer on DeMarcus Cousins and brought in Christian Wood an underrated small ball five who was supposed to be the next James Harden pick and roll partner, but Harden had other ideas. 
And when the team stated that they had no intentions of trading him, he decided he was just going to get really out of shape and just give terrible effort on a nightly basis, which is a move that he repeated this year with the Nets to get moved to Philadelphia. So the Rockets were forced to move off of James Harden. And since they had a team that was designed around his skill set without him, any hope of being competitive was completely lost. They really didn't get much back for that trade either. The decision to go with another kind of low quality draft pick or later first round pick versus just taking Jared Allen was not great. And then also taking Victor Oladipo back instead of Karis LeVert was not a great decision in hindsight either. At the time, even I would have rather had LeVert. He was younger on a longer contract. He still had some upside versus Oladipo who was coming off of Pretty serious injuries, and for the Oladipo part of it, it's especially heinous because later that season, they end up trading him for two expiring contracts, neither guy they even brought back, and then a pick swap in this year's draft with Miami. Last season, even, there was no chance, like, looking forward that the Rockets were going to have a better chance than Miami, so they basically just gave away Victor Oladipo for nothing and got nothing for that part of the trade. So at the end of the day here with Harden, they get back a Nets first round pick this year, Cavs first round pick this year, neither of which are going to be very high. I guess with the Nets kind of struggles, it's looking a little bit better than we would have thought entering the season, but it's still not going to be like a very high draft pick in all likelihood. And they're also ending up with the 2024 Nets pick, 2026 Nets pick, and then swaps in 23, 25, and 27. So unless something really crazy happens where I'm not sure how the play-in factors into the lottery stuff, because I expect the Nets to kind of make it out of the play-in. So I, I don't know if they kind of redo the lottery once the actual playoffs start and or if it's just entirely based off of record, because that may affect things for Uh, the Rockets potentially, but at the very least, the Nets are going to be likely to be better than the Rockets until I would say at least that 2026 draft, maybe the 2025 one. I think the 27 pick is guaranteed to be a good pick. It's conceivable that Durant would still be around, but at that point, he's going to be very old or retired at the very least. And Maybe that 26 and 25 pick are are, are okay or, or pretty good. So not too great of a haul because they could have taken some young, more proven assets back, guys like Der- Jared Allen versus just taking like a whole slew of draft picks. And so obviously last season and this season were completely lost. With the last season, they end up getting the second pick in the draft and take this ultra-athletic scoring machine shooting guard-type player in Jalen Green, and thus begins this youth movement in Houston. So a year into this process, it's clear the Rockets still have a very long way to go before they are ready to compete again. And while there are some pieces here that have shown some real potential, I still think they're further further behind in this process when compared to the teams I covered last week in the Magic and Pistons. And it isn't for talent reasons. It's more because it's still really unclear how any of the talent that Houston has fits together. In general, though, I I really like how hard this team competes. They give really great effort on a nightly basis. And I think head coach Steven Silas deserves a, a lot of credit for that. And for the Silas piece of this, I really do feel bad for him. He's He was brought in to kind of take the next step with the James Harden heliocentric offense, but he never got a chance to implement that. Imagine signing on as a coach thinking you're going to have the chance to really compete in the playoffs and maybe even potentially compete for a title, and then you blink and all of a sudden you're rebuilding right away. So I hope that they give him a chance to coach at least until they could start to get this thing turned around because otherwise that's that's just a really raw deal for him. So their leading scorer this season was Christian Wood. He's putting up about 18 a game with 10 rebounds. And with the ability to stretch the floor out to the three-point line, he's just a really solid big guy and a really solid option in this modern era of basketball. And at only 26 years old, you might think I would really be lobbying for the Rockets to keep him as a part of their future, but that just isn't the case. Christian Wood, like Silas, signed on 
for an entirely different situation than the one that's played out here. And it's clear he really isn't interested in being a part of a lengthy rebuild. He's had some locker room issues this season. And just in general, when you watch the Rockets play, there are times where his body language just outright sucks. And I can't say as I blamed him. If I signed on to play with James Harden expected to be in the playoffs and then overnight we're struggling to win 20 games in a season, I would feel some type of way about that. He is going to have value on the trade market as a great role guy in the pick and roll who rebounds and can space the floor out to the three-point line. So I think they should capitalize on his value. That way his negative attitude doesn't rub off on their young guys. His partner in the post is Alfred Shengun, an extremely skilled rookie big guy fresh off an MVP season in the Turkish League. I've talked about before how I'm all in on these rookies who win MVPs in overseas leagues, sort of like in the G League. You're playing against grown men over there and, and grown professionals. And for a kid to dominate the way he did, or in Luka Doncic's case, the way that he did, it really speaks to their skill and toughness. And while the Turkish league isn't as good as the league that Luca played in, it's still one of the more respected basketball leagues outside of the NBA. Shengun has really impressed me this year offensively. And while the 19-year-old's numbers aren't that impressive at nine points a game, five rebounds, the eye test has been really impressive. Shengun has some real scoring skill in the post and has very impressive footwork. Even on drives, he can execute just these flawless Euro steps or spins in the lane. And then passing wise, he's also really impressive. He's able to make good reads, hit cutters, even with like no look passes. I hesitate to call him a poor man's Jokic. It's more like the homeless version of version of Jokic, but his game does show some similarities. I do worry about him defensively though. He is bad on that end and bordering on out being an outright disaster. And for him, that will be the question mark when it comes to his longevity in the league. At only 6'9", are you going to be able to get away with him at the five in the future? He has time. He can bulk up a little bit. If he, and if he learns where to be and when to be there, that's, just, that's going to go a long way for him. I also briefly want to mention Jay Sean Tate and KJ Martin, both as like wings, three, stretch fours. I, I really like what both of them bring athletically, defensively, and they can hit some threes, but I think at the end of their career, they're going to end up being no more than good role players on a good team, which is still really solid and really solid pieces to have, but I don't want to spend too much time on them. Rookie Jalen Green is the second leading score at nearly 16 a game for them. And for Green, it probably hasn't been the rookie year that he or the Rockets fans or the Rockets in general had hoped for. But this roster really isn't designed to put his talents on display. He might not even be first team all rookie this year. And as the second overall pick, that might seem to be a bit of a disappointment. And you would be right. But this year, it speaks more to the quality of this year's draft class than a slide on Green. That being said, it's clear he has a lot of development to do, and uh, uh, it's going to take a long, it's going to be a long road for him to capitalize on his massive potential. But as I mentioned, this roster gets in his way more than anything. Also, if I could continue to be positive for Green, his issues or deficiencies are all extremely fixable. Green, at least offensively, has every tool in in the toolbox, every skill, every shot. He's got the handles. He's just got everything that you would want from an elite scorer in the NBA. There just really aren't many holes in his offensive game, nothing that he needs to add from scratch. He seems to just have it all. It's just a matter of him finding a way to be more consistent and polishing those skills that are already there. Also, basketball IQ-wise, He just needs to learn what is a good shot. Too many times it seems like he's settling for a tough step back three or a tough mid-range shot. He's a freak athlete, and he's only getting to the the line about three times a game. Green is the type of athlete that should be near the top of the league in terms of free throw attempts. Also, defensively, I would like to see him give better effort and just be better on that end in general. But all of these issues I just mentioned are extremely fixable, and they might fix themselves if there's a more thoughtfully put together team around him. 
Kevin Porter Jr. is his backcourt mate, and you might ex- you might think that I would be really high on a 21-year-old putting up about 14 points a game and six assists, but it's really not the case. KPJ has all the talent in the world, but he's already had issues in the locker room with both stops in his very short NBA career. And fit-wise, I'm not sure that I like him and Green together as a backcourt. And I really feel like some of Green's questionable shot selection can be attributed to KPJ. And while six assists a game is nothing to sneeze at, at times, I feel like that's a little bit overblown. He gets a lot of those Russell Westbrook assists where he dribbles the ball for 20 seconds of the shot clock just to hit a spot up shooter who has to fire away as the shot clock expires. KPJ, like Green, takes some really difficult step backs, mid-range shots, and like Green, is only getting to the line three times a game. That's just not enough for a guy as athletic and skilled as Porter. So I think that some of KPJ's bad habits shooting wise are rubbing off on green, but also because Porter can be so ball dominant, it might be the case that when green finally does get the ball, he's like, screw you guys. I'm taking this shot. I'm making this move. I haven't seen the ball for eight minutes. And it might sound like I'm being really hard on KPJ, but I really do like his game and his skill set. And I have no reason to believe, like Green, he can't clean up some of these things with time. The issue I have with him on the Rockets specifically is more of a fit issue. I just don't think that there's room on an NBA roster for two smaller gunner-type guards, which kind of gets me to the John Wall piece of this. I, for the life of me do not understand what the Rockets are doing with Wall. I know that they tried to trade him, but there just aren't any takers at that salary figure. And I also understand them not wanting to take shots away and playing time away from the young guys. But a point guard is just what the doctor ordered here developmentally for this Rockets group. Porter and Green specifically really need someone to feed them the ball to set up their scoring opportunities as opposed to doing doing it themselves. And I think the bad habits that they're forming are far more destructive than them getting a few less shots or a few less touches like they would by playing with John Wall. Also, just from a moral perspective in general, I'm really against you just sending a guy home who wants to play and, but also not buying him out. Like I, If you don't want him, it just seems really crappy to me to be like, well, we don't want you, but no one else can have you either. And I understand them not wanting to buy him out. Like they don't want to just throw $90 million out the window and have $90 million of dead cap. They get nothing for him. So it's just kind of a bad situation all around. I wish there was some type of rule change or something that could kind of catch these situations. I just wish there was a better solution. As far as the draft and the offseason go, I'm going to keep this really brief in the interest of not just repeating myself over and over because it's going to be a very similar prognosis to both the Magic and the Pistons. The Rockets, like those two other teams I just mentioned, are really pinning all of their hopes on the ping pong balls. And like the Magic, they really need to stay in the top three in this year's draft. The Rockets have a team full of like six, three to six, five shoot first guards and wings. So the five to 10 range is really not going to, in this year's draft is really not going to help them out at all. Like the magic, any of the Chet, Jabari or Paolo guys are really going to be great fits on this team and should theoretically be able to play alongside Shengun. The Chet fit is the one that interests me the most because Shengun has the weight to kind of shield Chet from having to guard centers night in and night out. But Chet is going to supply the shot blocking piece that Shengun doesn't have. If they do fall out of the top three, I think Jalen Duran is the way to go. A freak athlete, rim running five, who can be a really great pick and roll partner for Jalen Green and Kevin Porter Jr. I mentioned Christian Wood being potentially on the move, but I also think Eric Gordon is an enticing trade chip. Plenty of teams are going to be interested in adding his scoring punch, so it shouldn't be too difficult to move him. David Nwaba is also a guy that they can move, a defensive wing. That's likely going to be a player you're going to see on the move. Neither have the trade value of Christian Wood, and you likely aren't going to get anything back for either of those players that are going to make a huge difference. But given they aren't a part of your long-term plans, I think it's best to get some value out of them while you can. As far as the rest of the guys on the team, they really have most of their players under contract for next season. 
Bruno Fernando is a guy who's a, a free agent, whatever. I, I would likely let him go, but I don't really care one way or the other. Dennis Schroeder is an absolute let him walk. They don't need another score first guard on this team. Free agency wise, like I mentioned for the Pistons and the Magic, good locker room vets are exactly what they need. And even more so with the Rockets, with some of the locker room issues they have had this past year. But outside of that, a really savvy playmaking point guard who can calm things down, set up the offense and set up scoring chances for these young guys is going to be a must Ricky Rubio is the guy that first pops into my head from this free agent class. You can also go with a guy like Delon Wright or Tyus Jones. I just think that they need someone to run the show here so these young guards don't continue to develop bad habits. The Rockets are years away from being competitive and have some tough decisions roster-wise ahead of them. Of the teams I've covered so far, this is the team I've been most lukewarm about their future. When we started the year, I'm not sure anyone, even those who are kind of skeptical of this Pacers group, thought they were going to be one of the worst teams in the league. But here we are. So what went wrong this year? Well, the main reason the Pacers were are as bad as they are is they have just been completely devastated by injuries. And I hear what you're saying. Well, every team has had a ton of injuries, guys have missed time with COVID. That's not exclusive to them. But I I just don't think that people understand just how many games the core of this Pacers group has missed. So let's go through a few numbers to give that some context. Miles Turner has only played 42 games. Malcolm Brogdon, 36. TJ McConnell, 24. And TJ Warren, zero. The top five Pacers in terms of games played in a Pacers jersey is as follows. O'Shea Brissett at number one, Chris Duarte, Torrey Craig, Justin Holiday, DeMontis Sabonis. The number three through five guys on that list haven't played for the Pacers or even been on the team in over a month. And as of me doing the research for this, no one has played at least 60 games in a Pacers jersey. And even if everyone plays the rest of the way, no one will reach 70 games played in a Pacers jersey. So not too many teams are going to win games under that scenario, missing three starters plus a key role guy. That's just not a recipe for success. And it sounds like the makings of a really bad season. And while it has been that, I think this is actually going to end up being a blessing in disguise. And I know most of these eulogies so far have been fairly positive and more on the positive end, with the exception of maybe the Rockets one. But I promise as we go forward, that won't be the case. There's a lot of teams coming up that I'm pretty negative on. But hear me out with this Pacers situation. Just in general, this is a franchise that didn't have the potential to hit the next level with the current with the the core entering the year. They were going to be a mediocre team and didn't really have any ways to change that. It's a little like being stuck in a dead end job when you're a, a mediocre team in the NBA. I used to be a claims adjuster. I hated it, but it paid just well enough to keep me there and It's hard to hit the reset button, and it was for me on my career, because it can be scary. You're entering an uncertain future, but you have to do it in order to accomplish better things. And it's the same thing in the NBA. Because the Pacers were forced into a pseudo tank, it has also forced their hand with some awkward roster fit situations. It was clear that the Sabonis-Turner thing was not going to work out long-term. This just isn't a league anymore where you can really run dual bigs, and most of the time it felt like they were just in each other's way. So the Pacers end up making a handful of deadline deals, and just to summarize, they turned DeMontis Sabonis, Karis LeVert, Torrey Craig, Justin Holiday, and Jeremy Lamb into a 2022 first, Two 2022 seconds, a 2027 second, Tyrese Halliburton, Buddy Heald, and Jalen Smith. That's not a bad haul. They end up with some draft picks, they get some salary relief, and they get a really special player to build around in Tyrese Halliburton. Now, in the last three eulogies, I've gone through a handful of players that I like on the team that are going to be a part of their future going forward. But the reality is most of the guys that are currently playing for the Pacers might not be even in the league going forward, much less playing. So I'm just briefly going to touch on Duarte. And 
probably not so briefly on Halliburton. Duarte looks like a really good player. Maybe not an all-star level guy, but a really good starter at the very least. And when you consider that coming into the league, his draft profile was that of simply a three and D wing, a high floor, low ceiling type guy. It's clear that he's much more than that. I've mentioned a couple of times this year, him being an older rookie at 24, but dude can just play. This season, he has shown an ability to create his own shot off the dribble and handle the ball in the pick and roll. And as a potential third guard behind Halliburton and Brogdon, that can be really, really good. Even eventually as a starter, the Pacers could potentially have their backcourt set up for about the next decade-ish. And I've mentioned, I just mentioned how Duarte may not be an all-star, all-NBA level guy at the end of the day, but I do see that type of potential in Tyrese Halliburton. Halliburton is a ruthlessly efficient 6'5 point guard who's a really special playmaker and a really, really efficient shooter to boot. And while he isn't a sharp shooter like Steph Curry or someone like that, he is a guy who could potentially be a 50, 40, 90 guy off of efficiency alone. He's at least going to, at some point in his career, be a 50, 40, 80 guy. He's a really special passer and capable of seeing the entire floor hitting anyone at any time with an accurate and on-time pass. And since joining the Pacers, he's basically 17 and 10. I really just can't emphasize enough how much I love this dude's game. Also, since joining the Pacers, He's really been running the show in something that resembles the offenses we see the Mavs run with Luka or what we used to see the Rockets do with Harden. With the extra workload of running like a heliocentric offense, you would expect the efficiency to really fall off a cliff, but that hasn't been the case, and here are the numbers. Why? With the Kings, Halliburton averaged about 77 touches per game. He had a usage rate of 18.2%. It had the ball in his hands about five and a half minutes per game. He also averaged 3.2 assists per turnover. He had a 54.6% effective field goal percentage and 57.5 true shooting. Now with the Pacers, 93.5 touches per game with a usage rate north of 20% at 20.6 and has the ball in his hands about seven minutes a game. Now the assist to turnovers are down to 2.7 but the effective field goal percentage is up to 57.6 and true shooting up to 61.1 with an increased workload he has gotten even more efficient with the exception of the assist to turnover ratio and even with the decrease in that ratio he's still currently 25th in the league in assist to turnover ratio which is higher than Kyle Lowry one of the best floor generals in the league And even if you only factor in the time that he's been with the Pacers and not also the Kings numbers, he's still in the top 50 there ahead of names like Ricky Rubio, Drew Holiday, Draymond Green, Trey Young. And as good as these numbers are, they could be way better. I mentioned all the injuries that the Pacers have and the lack of talent that they have with the guys who are currently playing. And just too many times, Halliburton is making a great pass in a pick and roll situation to Bitadze, who's either bumbling the pass or flubbing the finish. And that isn't to say that Bitadze is terrible, but he's likely not really playing a lot for most teams. And he's nowhere near as good as what Halliburton is going to have in a pick and roll slash pick and pop partner in Miles Turner. Also, there's tons of times where Hal Burton throws a beautiful cross-court pass to a wide-open shooter who clanks it or he hits a cutter who just can't do anything with it. So next season, even if the Pacers just run it back with the guys that they already have, it's going to be a lot better than this smattering of G League guys that they're currently playing. Halliburton is just the type of player who elevates the play of his teammates, but he's also the type of guy whose own play is going to elevate the better surrounding parts he has. It goes way beyond the numbers with Halliburton too. I've mentioned before what a great leader he is, and that hasn't seemed to change with the change of scenery. When Halliburton was traded from the Kings, his teammates were reportedly just completely devastated and beside themselves. And now that he's on the Pacers, his teammates and and the coaching staff just cannot say enough about his leadership qualities. Above all else, he's just a dude who makes the right play, and his impact on the game is always going to be way greater than what the box score says. He just looks and acts like a winning basketball player. 
if I'm going to nitpick anything for Halliburton, it's that I would like to see him get to the free throw line more and just in general, look for his own scoring opportunities more. Since joining the Pacers, he's only getting like three free throw attempts a game. I would like to see that double to six in next season. In terms of this offseason, the Pacers could try to leverage this high draft pick that they're expecting into a, a veteran who can help them win in the short term. But I really think they need to embrace the youth movement here. And while the Pacers don't have the best odds at the number one pick, with the flattened lottery odds, they still are going to have something like a 10% shot at the number one pick versus 14 if they were the worst team in the league. And more good news for the Pacers here. Any of the top three guys, if they're able to sneak into the top three, are going to be really great fits for them. I know they just tried to do the dual big thing, but this year's top three are far more perimeter oriented than Sabonis or Miles Turner. So I think it could work. And even if they do fall outside of the top three, this is a really deep draft with tons of guys who are going to be able to help the Pacers right away. And with Halliburton at the point at his height, it allows them the flexibility to take a smaller score first guard like Jay Ivey. And then outside of Ivy, even if they're out of the top four, there's still tons of versatile wings, which is never a bad thing to add to your team, even as they get closer to the 10 range. Even if they added, wanted to add a guy like Jalen Duran, that's going to give Tyrese Halliburton a great pick and roll partner for the future. Of course, if you end up taking him, I think you're likely having to move off of Miles Turner if they decide to go in that direction. And speaking of that, the Pacers are in a really interesting position with some of the guys currently on the team. They can either go into like a full-on rebuild or run it back with a lot of the same guys who are two years removed from being the number four seed in the playoffs. So let's go through a few of those keys, guys. Let's start with Miles Turner. I think he is an absolute keep at $18 million for next season. That's a really affordable deal. And what you are getting is just a super athletic big who's a solid three-point shooter and is capable of being the leading shot blocker. He also only just turned 26 years old, so it's not as if he's like an aging player. He can be your defensive anchor in the present and also heading towards the future. T.J. Warren is a really complicated fit here. He's going to be an unrestricted free agent this offseason. And if he suits up at the start of next season, it will have nearly been two years since he last played basketball. Foot injuries just always scare me. So I really wouldn't want to commit big money or even more importantly than that, a long-term contract to TJ. If I can get him for like one year with maybe a team option for like $8 million or less, I think that's fine. But I just wouldn't want to commit long-term to him. Ricky Rubio is also going to be an unrestricted free agent. I think you just let him go. I think TJ McConnell is a fine backup point guard. And when you have guys like Duarte and, and Brogdon and Heels who are able to play the shooting guard, and more specifically with Brogdon, he can also run point. You just don't have a lot for Rubio to do, so there's really no need to keep him. Also, really no reason to be loyal to him since you traded for him as more of a salary relief type thing, and he's never gonna he's not gonna play a game for you this season. Jalen Smith is a guy I would want to bring back, but because the Suns ended up not taking his option before dealing him. The Pacers can only offer him something like $5 million for next season. So it's likely he's going to get a better offer somewhere else. But if I can bring him back, I'm absolutely doing that. For the Malcolm Brogdon and Buddy Heald piece, I feel like their fates are kind of tied together. I just don't feel like you need both with the emergence of Duarte. And I think Brogdon is the much better player and much better fit for the team. So given that he can play, off or on the ball he does some playmaking stuff so you could do like this yin and yang kind of thing with Halliburton and Brogdon playing off of one another also given they roughly make the same amount it seems like Buddy is more expendable in that scenario I wouldn't want to just give healed away though I, I wouldn't expect much back but I would want something back his contract just isn't as bad as it's kind of talked about it's only for two more seasons and it was front loaded so it's getting less and less every year and then also since joining the Pacers as a starter buddy looks a lot better 
numbers wise, but mainly just eye test wise. He looks way more engaged. He's making better decisions. And too many times with the Kings, he just wasn't giving any effort in whatsoever on the defensive end. And offensively, he just became like this black hole where the ball would just go to like disappear. Basically he would just get the ball and just be like, screw it. I'm shooting. I don't care if this is a good shot. I don't care if I'm covered. I don't care the situation, time score, whatever. I'm just going to shoot almost out of spite and contempt. And in the couple of games I've watched him play with the Pacers, he just isn't doing that. He's taking some pretty high quality shots that are within the flow of the offense. And just in general, he seems to be kind of re-energized and, and just happy it's funny how leaving the Kings will do that. But I think if you could get significantly more in a Malcolm Brogdon trade than trading Buddy Heald, I'm willing to do that. And here's why. Malcolm Brogdon played 75 games his rookie year, 64 in his third season, and hasn't hit the 60 win mark any other time. Or sorry, 60 game mark uh, for games played any other time in his career. Even though basketball fit-wise with Brogdon, it would be much better than Heald. He just isn't out there enough on the court to make him untouchable. And the Pacers should absolutely put some feelers out there just to see what the market would be for him. But I absolutely think the Pacers should be keeping one of either Brogdon or Heald. I don't think there's any reason to do a full teardown here. Unless they draft someone like Jaden Ivey, maybe Johnny Davis, I think in that case, both Heald and Brogdon are expendable, but I, I think if you're drafting like a wing or if they sneak into the top three, I think you should keep one of them. Free agency-wise, the Pacers just aren't going to be in contention for your Bradley Beals, your James Hardens, those type of guys, but they can still round out the roster really effectively if they're smart. They're going to have about $32 million in cap room if they don't re-sign anybody, and, and what do they need? I think wings are going to be the name of the game for them. I like the guard situation here, regardless of whether they draft someone or not. And big wise, I think you would be fine with the Turner Jackson Batadze situation. It's really just going to be getting players of quality who can play in that three to four spot. Sadly though, this just isn't a strong free agency class for those wings or just a strong free agency class in general based on who I think is going to be re-signing, like guaranteed. Like I think Bradley Beal is probably re-signing. James Harden's probably re-signing. Kyrie Irving's re-signing. Zach Levine's probably re-signing. So outside of those guys, like it looks on paper like a really good class, but those guys are all probably re-signing. So Miles Bridges for the Hornets is a guy I would absolutely target if I'm the Pacers, but the Hornets are likely going to be matching any offer that he gets. Otto Porter Jr. is a guy that I would target, though for like a stretch four position he's been solid throughout his career and this season with the Warriors he's shown he's still a really good role player and the Warriors aren't going to likely want to pay him because they're already way into the luxury tax so if you gave him like two to three years five to eight million I, I think that would be fine Kyle Anderson might be a guy the Grizzlies aren't interested in bringing back. So he could be a nice fit as well. And then like to a lesser degree, talent wise, you've got guys like Nick Batum, Derek Jones, Jr. Maybe Joe Ingles coming off of that injury, maybe Torian Prince, James Johnson. I think all would be worth taking a look at. Sadly for the Pacers here, this is going to be one of the toughest positions to fill, but it should be aided by whatever they end up drafting, be it a top three pick or if they slide into the four spot or even into that five to 10 range, they're going to be able to grab something that's really going to help them. Overall, though, of the teams that aren't making the play in this year, this might be the team that is positioned best for the start of next season and going forward. Maybe you would like the OKC situation better because of all the draft picks they have, but I think the Pacers are the clear number two on that list for sure. They're going to be able to grab something that really helps them in the draft. They have cap room, tradable contracts, and and young players that they can build around. They basically still have the core of the team that made it as the fourth seed in the East two years ago, minus Sabonis and an injured Victor Oladipo, who you are replacing with Tyrese Halliburton and a top pick in this year's draft. I think that's a trade most teams would take. 
um, especially given the direction that Oladipo's career appears to be going in. And the Pacers are just positioned really well to make the playoffs next season, or at least to play in, and they still have room to grow and improve with a relatively young roster. If they play their cards right in free agency and, and with regards to the draft, they're going to be able to position themselves to make a really strong offer for the next, next disgruntled star if they so choose. All of the injuries and the bad season just came at the perfect time for them, and it was a blessing in disguise. It forced them to move off of a few guys that were weird fits, and it's going to let them retool with a young, potential star point guard and a high draft pick and a deep draft while still holding on to the pieces that got them home court advantage in the first round of the playoffs just two years ago.